All right, happy Lord's Day. Good to see you all. Praise God. For those of you who don't know me, I am Pastor Wade Orsini, pastor of Apologia Church, Utah. Uh, we actually meet in this very sanctuary in the uh, evenings, and so it is a true honor to bring the proclamation of the word to you today, and um, I just love mission. We, we truly do love mission, and the elders here and all of you, we pray for you constantly. We truly do, and uh, without you all and your support in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we would have no place to worship, so again, I'm very grateful to all of you. We are going to start in Proverbs 29. If you want to turn there, we're going to be going around to different places. We are also doing an expository series in the gospel according to John, and from what I found out, I think 20 other pastors in this valley are as well, so it's a the whole John fest right now. Praise God for that. Um, and so I've decided on something else. The title of this sermon today, church, is The Snare of Fearing Man. The Snare of Fearing Man. Proverbs 29, verse 25. Hear now the inerrant and infallible word of the living and true God. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Thus ending the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Let's pray quickly, church. Lord, we praise you. We love you. We thank you for Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have redeemed us from the pit, that we sit here today as free men and free women. Lord, it's all by your grace. God, I pray that you would teach your people today as you've taught me. Lord, I pray that your word would illuminate them today by your Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who gave us these words. Lord, let this simply not be data or information that goes in one ear and out the other, but Lord, let it be something that transforms us, not simply informs us. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for treating us not as those under judgment, but those who are your sons and daughters with loving correction when needed and the reminder of your love. So God, please speak through me today. Glorify yourself in the preaching of the word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So I remember back to my seminary days. Uh, we had a small apartment in the city of Mesa, Arizona. I'm primarily from Phoenix, Arizona area. I was born in Southern California, uh, but most of my life I've lived in Phoenix. And in that little apartment in Mesa, we had free cable television access as an amenity. We didn't have anything to stream during that time, and we would go ahead and use that TV. Now, after a uh, late night of class at seminary, I went to Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary, and I would work during the day, 7 a.m. to 4 p.m., and then I would go to class from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m., and I did that for four years, and it was just an amazing experience. And um, I would come home at like 10.30, and my wife would either already be asleep 
or she'd be kind of, her eyes are halfway open. And I would condense all of those five hours down and exuberantly express to her all that I had just learned in those five hours in like a 30-minute theological shower on her. And uh, she would graciously receive it, and uh, I, was, I appreciated her for that. I just, I just loved it. I grew up without knowing Christ, and I really only went to seminary because I felt like I missed out on a lifetime of knowing him. And it was only halfway through that I realized God might be calling me to ministry. But I just loved every moment of it. But then here comes the fact where I'm talking about the TV. After I do that, I'm kind of a night owl. And I would let her go back to bed. And I would go to that little TV and I'd turn it on. And I uh, would turn it on to the Discovery Channel. In fact, I would turn it on to a show called Alaska, The Last Frontier. And you have to understand... As someone who lived until he was 12 years old and near the beach and uh, grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, my dad was like a surfer dad. That's what, that's what he did. When he was in his teens and 20s, he was a surfer at County Line, and he would just go surfing all the time. So my dad didn't know anything about guns, hunting, fishing, camping, nothing. We never did any of that. And I looked at all the other families loading up their sleeping bags and sleeping on dirt, and I wanted to do it too, you know? And... Uh, I, I, got, I, I desired to watch that show for that sort of sense of adventure that I never got. And for those of you who don't know what Alaska, The Last Frontier is, is a, uh, a camera crew follows around the Kilcher family, their four-generation uh, Alaskan homesteaders. And there in Alaska, they grow crops, they hunt, they fish, and uh, they make their living there in Alaska. Now, remember one episode I was particularly fascinated by what was happening. I'd never seen this before. One of the Kilcher sons was grabbing these uh, uh, bounds of cord, and in these places where there was a choke point in the brush, he would create these circles, and he was making snares and nooses. And uh, at these trapping sites, he would set them and then he would live capture like minxes and foxes and wolverines and, uh, you know, whatever animal, rabbits, you name it. He would lay the snare in this inconspicuous area, put brush over it and go away. And he'd come back the next day or whatever it may be. And he'd find one of these animals really, really upset with uh, one of these cords wrapped tightly around its neck trying to break free. Okay. And now, at this point, of course, uh, and for some of us, we would very much think, sadly, this is where this animal's life ends. He would take the animal's life, he would skin the animal, he would hang it up, do that whole process, and then he would use the fur for bartering, for trading, to get money, to sell it. Uh, he would do that in preparation for the brutal approaching winter. Okay. See, the proverb that we read says that the fear of man lays a snare. It lays a noose. It's a, it lays a snare for all of us. And I think the image that we ought to have with this is that due to our fear of man, we even lay traps for ourselves. Not only do we fall into traps, but we even lay them for ourselves and forget that they're there. When you think about it, have you ever seen a movie where there's a guy, um, 
He's a good guy in the movie, and he's trying to protect himself, and it's kind of a silly movie, and he puts all these booby traps around where he's, his hiding place is, and then in the movie, you know, or the cartoon, he forgets, and he steps into his, one of his own snares, and he gets lifted up in the air, and we all laugh, and, you know, that's kind of the way that we do this. We lay snares even for ourselves. They're all around us, and it can really affect us, because the reality is the fear of man can catch you and kill you. And it can bring awful maladies to you and it manifests itself in various ways. And one of the most common ways that the fear of man manifests itself is through man-pleasing. Man-pleasing. Now, have you ever struggled with man-pleasing? Have you ever tried very hard to seek the approval of others? I know I have. In fact, this is one of the main reasons why I, I've always searched, researched this, this topic for so many years. I wouldn't be surprised if almost all of us, in some capacity and varying degrees, have struggled with this. Maybe you even do it subconsciously. It's your MO. It's part of who you are. The fact is, we fear whomever most whose approval we seek most. We fear whomever most whose approval we seek most. And so on the scales of weighing the God of the universe and people, the scales often tip to people. The creatures over the creator, they, they carry more weight in our eyes than God sometimes. And as our actions and our intents collide, our actions often say, this offends the Lord, but I can't offend my friends. I know this is what Jesus commands, but I could lose my reputation. I'll lose my family. I could lose my friends. Jesus has given me the crown of life, but sometimes I want the crown of this life, the crown that men so often offer me. You see, the, the man-pleaser in church appears holy and righteous. He comes in. Wow, that, that guy's holy. Wow, that's a righteous guy. But watch him. Watch him as he goes to work and he laughs at the jokes of his co-workers and their weekend fornications and debaucheries. He laughs and he joins in. Watch this sort of person when he's around his unbelieving family and they dismissively blaspheme the name of the Lord our God and he doesn't bat an eye, he doesn't say a word, he just appeases, he goes along with it. Why say anything? Put the man pleaser in any situation and his goal is to be affirmed, approved, and admired. He's often a chameleon. He's changing shades. He'll go here. He'll be this person here. He goes to church. He'll be this person here. He can change and adapt wherever he wants. He's, as the Apostle James and the brother of our Lord says, double-minded, double-tongued. He can change pretty well. He'll change shades to the group and environment he or she is in, even if that means compromising Christian morals and convictions. No problem. Isaiah 2.22 says, Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? Stop 
regarding man. Stop fearing man whose breath of life is simply in his nostrils. In other words, regard the one who holds your very next breath. Regard the one who actually put that breath in your nostrils. Don't regard men who have breath in their nostrils. Regard the God who gave it. Consider him. In Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 1, he's amazed that they are so quickly deserting the true gospel for a false one, one made by men, the Judaizers. And as he explains, the gospel he gave them is not from man, it's directly from Christ. He says this, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. You see, pleasing men and being a slave, a bondservant of Christ, those things don't mix. They're not compatible. It's oil and water. You could stir it around all you want, but they'll separate later. You're either one or the other, hot or cold. What does Jesus say? Lest you be spewed out. And humans are always so anthropocentric which is a big old word that means we are man-centered, man-centered. And so our world is built. It was originally built for God to be the center. But now in this fallenness, man is at the center and he thinks he is. And so is fearing man. And so to excel in society is based less on merit and more on how well you can please your fellow man. I would say it's gotten worse, possibly for newer generations. We are entitled, we are owed, and we must be loved and accepted no matter what. No matter what. You accept me for who I am. We coddle each other in our sin, and if I coddled you well, then hopefully when I need it, you'll coddle me back in my sin. That's the goal, to receive it back. Now, here are some characteristics of the fear of man, okay? Listen to these. Fear of man. Being disobedient to God's commands, especially when it can earthly cost you. Wanting to be highly esteemed. Finding yourself always looking for a pat on the back. Hoping others will see your giving or good deeds. And often this person even takes themselves too seriously. Meaning that when your man-pleasing doesn't work and you feel threatened or your pride feels threatened, you can turn on others for even the smallest offense. Things that are not even sinful. Turning everything into a grave offense because you know it's, it's me. It's you. Hey, that's me. They can't do that to me. I'm someone special. Proverbs 2527 corrects this sort of thinking when it says this, it is not glory to search out one's own glory. It is not glory to search out one's own glory. And so when I showcase my works and hope for acknowledgement and praise, oh, did they see me? Who's going to say something? Then that is bootleg glory. That is false glory. That's not real glory. That's no glory at all. Some other traits of the fear of man are being easily embarrassed, reactionary, defensive, right? In fact, we can't let it go. 
No, what if they think wrongly? They don't know what I meant. Uh, you have to understand, this is what I meant. This is what I meant when I said that. You, you, you've got to understand me. Can't handle rejection well, easily offended, overly sensitive. I should just quit what I'm doing because obviously I'm not good enough. Or you receive some sort of feedback from someone in the church who really loves you, family or at work. You receive corrective feedback for your good because they actually love you. And it takes a lot of courage, by the way, for people to do that. And so they come to you and you say, well, it sounds like you could do it better, so why don't you do it? That's sinful. That's prideful. That's wicked. This sort of person is given to gossip. You see, they tear others down to build themselves up. They're given to peer pressure. You're convicted to do otherwise. These are your morals. This is what God has commanded. And then your peers are doing everything else, and you're like, well, you know, everyone else is doing it. I'll do it too. I don't want them to think differently of me. Or these might even hit a nerve, okay? Shyness, insecurity, being self-conscious. What will they think of me? What will they think? You know, maybe something happens. You've sinned. Maybe some of the people in church know. And what's amazing is we will recluse and evade the place where we need to be. I can't go there. People in church, they'll know what I've done. Some of the people know. So I'm not going to go. You're not going to go to the house of the Lord, the one place where you can expect to receive grace and mercy. I'm going I'm to go away. See, he who secludes himself seeks his own desire and quarrels against all sound wisdom. It's the Proverbs as well. Now, the fear of man that brings a snare has no doubt led many to some terrible sins. For instance, King Saul was commissioned by God to make holy war, to exterminate the Amalekites and destroy all that they had for their great evil. But it says that Saul and the people, and the people, it says, spared Agog, and they were not willing to destroy utterly all the, the the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, they kept what was good, even though God said to destroy it. And so we know from there it says that God was greatly displeased and regretted making Saul king. And when, the, when Samuel the prophet comes to question King Saul, Saul first lies. He lies and says, he, I obeyed God. And then he deflects blame by saying, the people took the spoils. And isn't that what a weak leader does? He deflects blame. He takes no ownership. He, he takes no self-responsibility. And finally, as Samuel tells him God desires obedience over sacrifice and rejects Saul as king, Saul finally admits this. I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your word, Samuel. And here it is because I feared the people and listened to their voice. He feared the people instead of fearing God. And so his reign had come to an end, and the blessing and anointing and spirit of God, it says, left King Saul. Now what about a New Testament example? We have Pontius Pilate. This man has an appalling sin, 
The holy and blameless Jesus Christ is before him, and after examination, Pontius Pilate declares this, I find no fault in this man. That was true. I find no fault in this man. He then sends Jesus to Herod. He says, maybe you're part of his jurisdiction. But then Jesus comes back to Pontius Pilate from Herod, and Pilate re- re- responds like this to the people. You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. Nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Even Pilate's wife, it says, suffered uh, much in a dream And she said, have nothing to do with this just and innocent man. Looking to set Jesus free, so he had the intent to set Jesus free, it says. Pilate tried to reason with the people, but then the people said, to let Jesus free would then make him an enemy to Caesar because this Jesus of Nazareth claims to be the king over everyone. So the people were incessant and unrelenting to crucify our Lord. Let his blood be on us and on our children. Crucify him, crucify him, and they keep going. And he's worried about a riot. He's worried about losing his position. He washes his hands in front of everyone as if that absolves him of this great sin. He says, I'm innocent of the blood of this man. Mark 15, 15 says this. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified, and we know unto death. So what did it say? Wishing to satisfy the crowd. And so the fear of man has now for two whole millennia and will continue to be the historical infamy of Pontius Pilate the biggest man-pleaser, the biggest man-to-fear man, Pontius Pilate. Of course, we praise God for his sovereignty. Acts 2 speaks of this, that Jesus was put to death at the hands of godless men and yet handed himself over willingly at the predestined foreknowledge of God. I'm certain many of us may be thinking, well, that makes sense that two bad men would not fear God and they would fear man. Let me give you some examples of men we normally hold in high regard. How about Aaron, the brother of Moses? Aaron, who is the first high priest of God, he even speaks to God and is a representative of God to the people. When Moses was on the mountain of God receiving the Lord's commandments, The people came to Aaron, seeing that Moses was delayed, and impatiently asked Aaron to fashion for them a god that they may worship, an idol. Now they use gold that they have from their own jewelry, from the spoils of Egypt that they took with them, and they take all this gold, they give it to Aaron, and he fashions, sinfully fashions for them this golden calf, and he announces one of the most horrible false witnesses in all creation— He points to a golden cow, and he says, This is your God, Yahweh, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Sickening. 
Despite having just seen the power of the one true God deliver them from the hands of Egypt, they start giving offerings and sacrifices to this false god, this idol, this demon. If only Aaron had proper fear of the Lord or even some level of courage like his brother Moses. He desecrated his own priestly hands with this profane act. It says in Exodus 32, after Moses comes back down from the mountain, it says, Then Moses said to Aaron, What did the people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord burn. He says this, You know the people, that they are prone to evil. (laughs) So what do we see again? Deflecting blame. Aaron was fearing the people and not standing firm for what is right, even if it meant that the people desert him, they reject him, they hurt him, or even kill him. It's honestly, truly God's grace that Aaron wasn't exterminated along with those others. You know, it says that, the Levites were ordered to take swords and they slayed all those people who offered offerings and sacrifices to that cow. And Aaron, his life was spared. Such a grace from God. And we'd likely do the same thing, no doubt. Now, do you think a pastor, a ministry leader could respond to God in the same way on the day of judgment? The pastor who, ne- who neglects righteous and biblical church discipline, the pastor who disregards sin in the congregation, who lets it just go freely, the kind of pastor who tickles ears and gives the people what they want to hear from the culture instead of giving them what they need to hear, that kind of pastor, what do you think he'll say? Do you think he could say, well, you know the people, they're prone to evil. He could never say that. No, the proverb says the shepherd knows well the conditions of his flock and he cares for it as the good shepherd has done. So pastors can never deflect blame. Now on to Peter the apostle. Peter is the man with whom we can see much of ourselves regarding his mistakes. It's like, oh yeah, I would do that. Yep, Peter, I would do that. Our brother Peter is often bold one moment, and then faltering the next. And so after they celebrated the Passover, and Jesus institutes the very first supper of our Lord, they walk to the Mount of Olives, where he warns them that this very night, all will fall away. Every single one of you, he says to his apostles. And Peter emphatically and strongly and resolutely says, Even if all fall away, I shall never fall away. And Jesus gives that intensely foreboding statement, and he says, Peter, this very night, you will deny me not once, but three times. And Peter, still pridefully, arrogantly says, I'll never deny you. Peter is following at a distance after our Lord was taken and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was taken to Caiaphas' house. It was in the middle of the night. 
They're holding a session in the middle of the night. They're questioning Jesus with the elders and the Pharisees. Peter starts walking, tiptoeing into the courtyard, and a servant girl, servant girl of all people, recognizes Jesus as having been, I'm sorry, recognizes Peter as having been with Jesus. He fears the girl, he fears the people who are within earshot, and he denies all affiliation. And in an, in an effort to more strongly abate their accusations, it says he starts to swear and curse because he doesn't want to sound like a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ. He doesn't want to sound like a Galilean. He starts changing his voice even. And then he outrightly denies the Lord. And the rooster crows. What does it say? He wept bitterly. Bitterly wept. And I mean, the amazing thing is, is that Peter walked with the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, through whom John 1 says is God and was with God and through whom all things were created. We're talking the God of the universe, the one with whom he was discipled personally three years. He saw Jesus raise people from the dead. He saw Jesus heal people miraculously. He saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration change unveiled the righteousness and unveiled glory of the Lord Jesus Christ was shown and he saw the father endorse him this is my son in whom I am well pleased he knows all this but he feared man over God and you know what I am confident I can say this with complete confidence that we would do the same thing in a fallen state absolutely But I think the prayer of us all is that the Lord would keep us from such a thing today. That being filled with the Holy Spirit, knowing the power of our great God and the promises that lay ahead, that we wouldn't deny him. I know I pray that. I hope you pray that. But of course, we always consider the gun to the head martyrdom situation. Or back in the early 2000s, do you remember... uh, you know, there'd be videos and it'd show Christians on their knees with their hands tied behind their back and, a, and, and a, you know, something covering their heads and a guy with a sword about to kill them during these times of Arab nations and Christian persecution. We think back to these sort of things like, oh, Lord, give me the grace to die righteously, to not confess you in something like that. But I'm not even talking about that. In the moments, in the secret places, in the situations where all other Christians are gone, when it's you and God, and you have an opportunity to confess him before others, do you fail? Do you do it? In where no one would, but God would see, didn't you intentionally not confess him? Like it came to your mind. Then you don't do it. I don't do it. We deny him. And I I think we can do it often. And so truly, the fear of man brings a snare, brothers and sisters. In some cases, it can be literally the stumbling block to which a man may not come to conversion. You see, I know Mission Church does a lot of outreach to Latter-day Saints and all other types of loss. In fact, Apologia Church joins in with them many times. 
And on several occasions, this is not a normative uh, uh, circumstance. This is a rare occasion. I've seen this once or twice in the past three years. We've learned of a man, or at least met a man, who kind of looked around, and he got a little closer, and he said, look, I know that all of this is false. I know that Joseph Smith is a phony, and I know that none of this is true, but I love the culture, and I love my family, and I don't want to lose my inheritance. I don't want to lose the family business. My dad is training me up in it. I've got my wife, got a couple kids. You know she would leave me for this, right? I'd lose everything. The community, I'd be blacklisted, my reputation, it'd all be gone. Jesus says to count the cost. Count the cost, brothers and sisters. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Not some. All of it. Even if he gained all of it. What would it profit him if he lost his own soul? How sad for what God's word calls a momentary and light affliction. And by the way, I know those are hard things. That's hard. It'd be hard for someone to do that. But the word calls these sufferings, these sort of things, a momentary and light affliction. This sort of man would give up the true Christ and the salvation he offers. Fear of man in that sense is, is not just a snare, but it's literally the noose around someone's neck in that circumstance. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, So they never come to Jesus, because the fear of man, which bringeth a snare, it keeps them still as the hopeless slaves of sin that they are, but young man... Do you mean to be damned to hell just to please somebody else? Do you mean to fling away your immortal soul in order to escape the laughter of fools? Spurgeon then says, remember that they may laugh you into hell, but they cannot laugh you out again. Let not the fear of man be the ruin of your soul. He challenges everyone. Now there is another area where we fear man, and it is a most egregious sin. When we fear men to the point where we refuse them the soul-saving message of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like the servant with the one talent. He buries it in, in the ground. The master returns. He presents the one talent, what he's already been given. And the master is upset. He rejects it. And so this one is particularly conv convincing Convicting, I'm sorry. We are not to hoard the precious gospel to ourselves. We are to give it freely. As it has been given freely to you by his grace, you are to give it in like manner. Uh, of whom much is given, much is required. Well, you might say, look, I go out, I do events to reach the lost with my church. We go out with the gospel. I write a check that supports the guys who go out. All of that is needed, by the way. Praise God for that. All glory to God. Keep doing that. But we think to ourselves, street preaching, passing out tracts, witnessing to strangers, 
Maybe that's a kind of a no problem thing for you. Maybe it's not. But what about sharing the gospel to lost parents? What about unbelieving siblings that you'll see? What about relatives? What about the neighbor who helped you move in and then you went to a barbecue to his house and you know they don't believe in Christ and, you know, they kind of told you what they believe, but you're like, ah, I just I don't, know, I don't know if I want to go there. What about your coworkers? What about that best friend that you've had? And 10 years ago when Christ saved you, your friend kind of knows that something happened to you, but you never have re- really addressed it with them. You're still their best friend, sort of, but you guys are different now. Never really told them why you're different. What about the people you'll see again? And that's what it is, brothers and sisters. It is often much easier to share the gospel with people you'll never see again. You don't see their face again. But it is very difficult often to share the gospel with loved ones and with people you see. Okay? What will we say? What if Jesus goes, why did you shut your mouth there? I saw that. I saw, I saw that it was on your heart. But you didn't say anything. Why did you do that? You know, because we say, well, I want to be loving. I just want to keep the peace. Jesus says in Matthew 10, even, even Jesus didn't come for such peace. He says, Matthew 10, 34 through 37, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother, against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy than me, worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And you could easily swap those words out and say, those who fear or revere their father or mother more than Christ is not worthy of Christ. And so truly, church, for those whom you care for, for those whom you say you love, what is the greatest act of love? It's sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, we'll stand here in these pews. We'll go out in that hall and say, the Lord is my everything. The Lord's changed my life. He's changed my eternal destiny. And then we'll walk out and be like, but I'm not going to. But no, that was me. And it's me and God. No, he says to share it, to share it. Share what you say has changed you forever. We say Colossians 4.3, we say, I'm praying for an open door. Colossians 4, praying for an open door to share the gospel. And what we often think in our minds is, someday you're going to be in your house and the door to your front door is going to open and that person who you've been neglecting to share the gospel to is standing there and there's like white doves flying back and there's light coming through the doorway and you hear angels going, and they go, I'm finally here to hear the gospel. Will you deliver it to me now? I am eager to listen. Sure, sure. And that's the door we think we're waiting for. But honestly, there's doors open all around us. In fact, sometimes we kind of close them, close a door. That door's been open for a while. 
Don't use that as a crutch. Just do it. Rip the Band-Aid off, you know? Fear of man truly lays a snare, and that snare can go around your lips and keep them shut tight. So what is the cure for this great sin, church? In Proverbs 29, 25, the second part, it says, he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. He who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. He who trusts in the Lord will be, in other words, put on a high place, away from danger, away from evils. Other translations say, he who trusts in the Lord shall be safe or kept safe. So transfer your fear of man to God. Stop fearing man, transfer that fear of God, trust in God. Regard, revere, trust in God rather than man. And because fear of man is really an issue of faith. It's an issue of belief. Faith overcomes fear of man. And so if I have full faith in God in in any particular situation, I will be combating fear of man. I will be able to say like the psalmist, what can man do to me? What can man do to me? Or like the apostle, if God be for us, who can be against us? And the fear of man is cowardice. But trusting in God develops courage in all of us. And it's like a muscle. Start small. Build it up. Like I never mentioned my faith at work. Well, your coworkers are talking about the pride march that they went to on Sunday. They're talking about how their son is starting to transition. They're talking about their false gods. Start slipping it in. Start moving it in. And what that's going to do is that's going to develop courage. And then one day, one of them, are gonna, one of them is going to challenge you, a family member, something. And you're, just, you're not going to get angry. You're not going to get over the top. But you're going to be like, all you have to say This is what God's word says. Because I'm a Christian, I follow God's word. And if you just stop there and pray, and hopefully maybe in a couple weeks or months or maybe even a year from now, you you touch back on that, that's okay. Build it like a muscle. Build courage in the Lord. Fear him. Remember that you're a soldier in the army of the captain of the Lord of hosts, and you can say, you can say, whom shall I fear? We know in Proverbs 1, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And so I think the opposite could be said. The fear of man is the perpetual cycle of stupidity. Fear of man is the perpetual cycle of stupidity. And so since our main passage is in the Proverbs, let's consider some of the benefits or results that the Proverbs say regarding fearing and trusting God. I'm just going to go through these quick. You don't have to navigate there if you don't want. You can write them down. I'm just going to kind of blitz through them. Proverbs 8:13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. So if you don't want to fear man, but you want to revere God, you must hate evil. You must hate evil. And I think the proverb makes it clear that it's not just the big kinds of evils. You're like, yeah, I'm the guy who is against sex trafficking and abortion and slavery and genocide. Yeah, that's me. I'll wear a t-shirt like that. 
But it says even in this proverb, Proverbs 8.13, pride, arrogance, and the perverted mouth. And why is it hard to say those things? Because some of those things are still in us. (laughs) And so we got to hate those things in us. If we fear the Lord, we must kill those things in us. Proverbs 10.27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. I'm not going to be like a TBN preacher and said, you fear the Lord, he'll grant you with 100 years at least, or something like that, right? That's not what this means. In his sovereignty, he may bless you with a longer life. He'll do what he pleases with your life. But I think it's clear that when you fear God, you keep away from evil activities like drunkenness, drug addiction, thieving, murdering, quarreling, and other risky behaviors that would undoubtedly shorten the life. Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence and his children will have refuge. Do you lack confidence? I've lacked confidence. Do you lack faith sometimes? See, in the fear of the Lord, you can have a strong faith so much so that it will be a refuge to you. It will be a refuge like being on a high place away from danger. He'll give you confidence. Fear the Lord. And it's true, the more you see it, the more he takes you to that safe place in hard situations, the more confidence you'll get. I promise you. You be faithful. You see him come through, and it'll build your confidence in him. Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. The Hebrew word for, the fa- for fountain here can also be source. The fear of the Lord is source of life. It reminds me of Christ and the living waters that he provides. Those who fear the Lord receive his living water by grace and avoid the clutches of eternal death. Proverbs 16, 6, by loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, One keeps away from evil. So not only does one hate evil when they fear the Lord, but they are able to keep away from it. If you fear the Lord, you're not going to be in a situation where there's tons of evil. Most likely. You're not going to find yourself in a place where you have to sin. There will be a way out. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied untouched by evil. You know, even in some of the darkest circumstances or the most difficult moments of persecution, it's been recorded in Christian history that some saints have been able to sleep satisfied despite such persecution. And we can too when we fear the Lord rather than men. And that can be in a variety of things. Maybe you have something Uh, really significant that you have to do tomorrow that's going to take you out of your comfort zone. Maybe you're going to finally try to share that gospel message with that person. Maybe you've got a presentation to do or public speaking, the worst fear of everyone. And you can, if you fear God, sleep well the night before, it says. Proverbs 22.4, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. So we see here humility, humbleness, and the fear of the Lord, they go hand in hand. And they themselves are the riches and honor that we strive for, not the praise of men. Humility is what we should strive for, not the praise of men. 
It reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus admonishes the Pharisees, and by extension, every single person ever, he says, don't practice righteousness in such a way where you're a hypocrite, where, where really you just want people to see you. See you taking your big load of tithe. Oh, here's my offering. Praying in such a way, it's like, Lord, you're so good. I hope I sound articulate. I, so, I hope it sounds beautiful that other people think I'm just amazing. And so what, is, what does Jesus say? Then you have your reward. What was the reward that person wanted? They wanted praise from men. What is the reward they're not going to get? The pleasure of God. All they wanted was men to admire them, and they got it. They got it. Last one, Proverbs 23, 17. Do not, do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. So fearing the Lord will help you fight against envying sinners, to see what they have, to see the status they've gained, and you'll then be able to change your posture and pity them rather than envy them. That they need the gospel, that it doesn't matter. That all the riches they have are going to a place where the moth and rust destroy, and you have a treasure in heaven that is incomparable. I think it's important to note that not only when we trust in the Lord, we shall be safe from the fear of man, but also spiritually safe, despite even physical peril. Okay? You might read this and think, well, if I fear God, I'm never going to be in physical peril. I'm never going to suffer. And that's not what it means. You'll be spiritually safe. So what do I mean? We just saw that to fear the Lord is to hate evil, to do what is right. We see the example of many men in the Bible that although they were safe because they feared the Lord, they still suffered for it. Suffering is an aspect of our sanctification that the Lord uses to refine us, to skim off the impurities off the gold, and he's going to present us before the Father, his bride, blameless, without defect, without blemish. And so it helps us to endure this suffering. It causes us to persevere. Christ is the supreme example of suffering, and yet only did what the Father willed and what he willed. And so there is greater risk, hear me out, there is greater risk in fearing man and avoiding suffering than in fearing the Lord and enduring suffering. There's greater risk in fearing man and, su and avoiding suffering than in fearing the Lord and enduring it. Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Remember, what can man do to me? You see, the most a man could do, the most anyone could ever do to you, they could never rob you of salvation, they could never give, take away the inheritance that you have in Christ, they could never take away the 1 million, 200 million, 1 billion years that you'll get with your Lord Jesus. They'll never rob you of that. All that they could do, the worst that could happen to you is they could kill you. They could kill me. But they can't do anything else. To forfeit my faith, as I think we have seen a lot of people do in the past couple years with this so-called Christian deconstructionism is of far greater and eternal consequence. And so this is how you can suffer and still be safe. You fear the Lord. 
You could be in a cistern filled with mud, rejected and alone by your kinsmen, like the prophet Jeremiah, but you could still be safe. You could be slayed by the sword like, the, like James the Apostle, but still be safe. You could be in prison. You could be in a, in a prison cell for obeying God rather than man, and you're safe. You're safe. Because the one who holds your soul is the fountain of life and life eternal. And to quote Spurgeon again, he says, a Christian man need never be afraid of anybody. If you are doing right, you have no cause to fear the greatest man who is serving the devil. Take the, take the most fiercest and devil-worshipping man in the whole world, the most, the most uh, evil, malicious, murderous man following after his father, Satan. Take that man in this whole earth, put him in front of you, and you have no need to fear him. So how does one stop fearing man and trusting the Lord more? How does one not give in to man-pleasing? We, of course, need to be renewing our minds according to the word of God. Read his word. Read his promises. Look back. See how he has kept them. Look ahead. Expect that he will keep them. We, we're a forgetful people. Look back at the monuments in your life. We're so quick to forget what he's done for us. Remember, he's always kept his promises. He always will. He'll never fail in keeping any of them. He, we can have faith that he will make good on them. And he'll bring us to eternal life. John 6, 47, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, which, by the way, is the way that... Uh, the Old Testament prophets would say, thus saith the Lord. Jesus is God, so he doesn't need to say, thus saith the Lord. He says, truly, truly, in truth, I say to you. He can just say it with his amazing authority. He says scripture right here. He says, he who believes has eternal life. Is Jesus God? Yes. Is Jesus impeccable? Is he sinless? Yes. So then would Jesus lie? No. Hebrews chapter 6 says it is impossible for God to lie. So if Jesus has declared it, if he says, when the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That word is truly. When the Son sets you free, you will be actually, truly, and really free. You won't be partially free, sort of free, maybe free. You will actually be free. And so Jesus has promised these things. And so that should help us and fuel our fear and trust of the Lord rather than of men. If we viewed everything we did in light of eternity and the victory of Christ on earth as in heaven, how would that change your thinking? How would that change your thoughts, your actions, your faith? Because do you know what awaits you, the redeemed sinner? How could we fear why would we please men for gain if we knows what lies ahead? We ought to be people who sees a treasure and we bury it in a field and we walk away and we raise enough money to buy that field and come back and dig it up and Christ is that treasure. Christ is the treasure beyond all measure. Any gain in this life by worldly standards is actually compared as is lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. 
being found in him, and having a foreign righteousness applied to our account. Amazing. So you need to believe in his word more. People are so sick of preachers on Sunday saying, read the word more. I'm telling you, it's truth. It's truth. It's living. You got to go to it. Another way to stop fearing man or committing man-pleasing is embracing moments of humbling. Embrace moments when you are made low. When you got something wrong, don't be defensive, but own it. When you make a mistake, don't cover it up. Fix it where needed and take responsibility. Learn to laugh at yourself more. Why are we always so serious? Laugh at your mistake. You know, we can get obsessive about a situation. We can get our minds fixated. If only I would have done this differently, then I wouldn't have received the embarrassment that I got. And we, we keep replaying it in our minds. If only I did it this way, this would have never happened. And then this person wouldn't have said this. And now I'm mad with this person. We just replay these things. Get out of your head. Just accept it and lean into the humility. Huh. You know, I'm going to make mistakes. But I follow a redeemer who doesn't. See, those things really are born out of a desire to maintain our precious pets of pride. Oh, that's okay. Keep feeding it. In any other context, this would sound terrible, but starve that puppy. <laughs> that sounds horrible. <laughs> so rather, let iron sharpen iron. If you're rubber and other people are iron then no one can ever correct you, no one can joke with you, no one can converse with you without you feeling damaged or offended. So harden yourself. So we must repent from this. Man-pleasing then is ultimately self-pleasing. That's what's behind it. Man-pleasing is self-pleasing. And so we need to turn our focus on Christ and off ourselves. Man-pleasing comes from a heart of self-idolatry, vainglory, and pride. Christ, though, gave us the example of servanthood. He washed the apostles' feet. He washed even Judas's feet. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We are due to the same. You know, I, I really, this used to be a terrible sin of mine years ago. And the Lord did humble me and crush me. And it's just one of the hardest periods of my life, but he did that in such a way to remove this from me. But I'm sick to my stomach when I think of the times that in church, I would hope that the pastor would thank me for the things I did. I would hope that people would say nice things to me. Wow, you're so amazing. And I'm sick to think that I ever did that for anyone. I, that was my reward. And so we've got to build our desire to serve others with the, only the desire of helping that person. It says, have this mind that is in Christ Jesus. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Otherwise, you make yourself out to be an idol. So let me wrap this up here, church. This really tests what we believe. And so where's our true love? In Christ or the approval of men? See, many men feared the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They didn't confess Jesus then. And it says in the gospel that they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. 
It says, Nicodemus came to Jesus under nightfall. I know there's various possibilities of why he did that. It could have been fear of man. Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man who provided the tomb for Jesus, it does record that he was a secret follower of Jesus due to his fear of the Jews. And now it's my strong conviction, and I pray it's your strong conviction, that I think the scriptures show both Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had true faith in Christ. And I would surmise that after the Lord resurrected, they went public with their faith and confessed it. They gave their life to Christ as he had given his life for them. That's my hope. Because the scriptures say, all who confess Jesus before men, he'll confess you before his Father in heaven. And so they had a, they had a, a half picture. We have the fuller picture. We have the fuller revelation. And that makes a huge difference. Let us cast off any fear of man or man-pleasing because of the glorious atoning work of Christ. How can you do this? Why should you do this? Because Jesus died for you. And he broke the power of sin, not just the penalty of sin. We don't need to please men anymore. And any pleasing that comes to others by our actions ought to be the byproduct, the result of pleasing God chiefly. That is to say, when I'm pleasing God in my marriage, it pleases my wife. When I'm pleasing God in my ministry or whatever ministry capacity you're in, then it pleases the church. When I'm pleasing God in my work, then it pleases my employer. And when I am pleasing God in my parenting, it for the most part pleases my children. But we need to know what's primary. We need to know what's above it. We need to know what's important. And lastly, in John 5, it says the Jews were looking for any reason to kill Jesus because he was making himself out to be equal with God. And in Jesus' defense, he truly condemns them. He says in verse 44, how can you believe when you receive the glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? And the point is, Jesus is saying they don't believe. He says, how can you even believe if you receive glory from one another? How can you even believe if you desire the praise of man, if you're seeking to please man? How can you even believe? But church, Christ came to hang on a cross and resurrect for that sin in you and in me. He died for that one. He died for all of them. And we are here today because we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. And it was not fear of man that brought Jesus to the cross, but love of his Father and love for us. So we believe the gospel. And so my admonishment to you is to act in accordance with that gospel. You've been saved, you've been justified, now walk in that sanctification. We don't need to fear man anymore. We don't need to fear man anymore. Fear the Lord our God. Because fear of man lays a snare, but trusting in the Lord is safe. Trust in the Lord and love the Lord. And as the apostle says, his perfect love casts out fear. 
And so remember that love and no longer fear man, but fear and revere and trust God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please bless the message that went out today for your glory and for your name. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that when it needs to work on us, when it needs to cut us, you mend us. When it needs to mold us, you're careful to shape us. Lord, you're loving with us, and you're slow to anger with us and abounding in steadfast love. And Lord, we can have an expectation not of judgment, but we can boldly approach the throne room of grace, expecting to receive grace and mercy. And so, Lord, help us as a church, as the body of Christ, to move forward from here with that reality in our hearts and our minds and our spirit. Lord, that you have saved us and that in that way, we never have to fear man again. And we get most gratification and most pleasure in pleasing you over men. We praise you, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.